0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So very excited about our guest today. You know, very much the international, you know, type of approach, global approach, you know, that he has taken. And I think that we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, expansion, raising, pivoting, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Amir Barsoom. Welcome to
1: the show. Hello, Alejandro. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. So
0: originally born and raised there in Cairo to a
1: family of pharmacists. So how was life growing up? <laughs> it was very it was it was seeing entrepreneurship um in uh, in uh, in from its starting point. Uh you know, born born to a father who was putting 12 to 14 hours a day trying to build uh his uh, his small business from scratch. And uh, you know, 1980s, there was no much of a fundraising um in the in the Middle East. It was really uh you know, bootstrapping it um you know saving from here to add there uh I think we've learned entrepreneurship and how uh, how fulfilling journey it could be, but also how demanding it is
0: a hundred percent i mean did you did you kind of like see your parents and then you you kind of like taught yourself or or thought to yourself that one day you were gonna do it as well?
1: So all my all my life, I was thinking that you know one day or another I will end up being an entrepreneur. Never thought that I would be a tech entrepreneur because we were very you know very pharmacist and medical family. Uh, to the extent that when I was young, I used to go to my dad to the pharmacy and play with the you know the syrup bottles for children. Uh, I used actually to play with those. Uh, these are my uh, these are my my, my play toys. Uh, and you know, you get a plastic one, hit the glassy one to break it, and then you win. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's how it was. Uh, that's how it was in, in in my childhood. So I thought that one day I'm gonna be running this uh, this pharmacy chain and uh, and take it to the next step. Uh, but never thought that I would be a tech entrepreneur, more thinking of the innovation, the new market pains versus uh, growing a traditional business. I think the old. A merge together to almost the same set of your daily tasks, but uh, but I would say not uh, n- n- they don't start in the in the same point uh, or the same starting uh, the starting line.
0: Yeah, and in, I mean in your case you did definitely follow your 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 parents' footsteps because you studied pharmacy, but then literally you know like coming out of your studies you actually you know did your master's too, but then you started your first startup. So what was that first startup that you did back then?
1: So when I when I when I did pharmacy, um um I the, the the path was either to go work into the traditional retail stores line or to go work into into a pharma company. And um, and I was very I, I I wasn't necessarily excited by any of these paths. So I decided to to do something uh differently and I built uh, a distribution part of pharmaceutical business. So Every single thing that you can sell in a pharmacy in the OTC side, not in the prescription side. Um, and with time, we were a distributor. Then with time, we started to make important expert deals um, um, with different players, focusing primarily on, on Egypt. And it it, it, it uh, we took the company from first, you know, just started it. And I, I sold it when we were around 120 employees. Uh, distributing in almost all the cities of of, of Egypt, uh, I exited it uh, three years after. But again, I wasn't expert. so I haven't made real money out of this. But but I think uh, the learning was uh, was uh, was amazing and immense, especially for somebody who was 21 years old, just out of college, uh, trying to make a deal with you know the Carrefour of the world, the the big big. Uh, um, markets of the world, and I think that was a, that was an incredible um incredible piece
0: got it I mean in your case, I mean obviously you exited here to investors as opposed to exiting to another company. I mean, why exiting to other investors?
1: so they were at that time there was uh that was the the disturbance and the and the disruption that's happening in Iraq in the Middle East. So some of the uh, of, of of prominent people there started to choose countries to move from, uh, and they actually moved to Egypt, and that's when I made the exit. So actually, uh, it was an individual um, investor who's trying to establish presence in Egypt. He came in as a as a as a as an investor and kind of a partner, and then after six months he uh, he decided to buy it all, and I was happy to to take it to the next step. The, the dream in my head was I want to apply and go work for a multinational company to learn how the multinational companies work uh, and it was very, very interesting i I took my I, you know twenty four years old kid i I built my resume. it was an an amazing one I think I thought that was an amazing one, you know, with the achievement that I've done with this company, uh, and I started to go applying to different uh, multinational companies, especially the pharma ones, and every single one of them told me. You are a burnt case. You, we, we, it's not going to work. Uh, you are uh, again. You are advanced to become an entry level, and you never worked in multinationals. So you're not good enough to uh, to be uh, in a managerial level. So we're sorry, it's not going to work. And it, it took me six months with that until, in just one day, as a, as, a, as surprising as it gets, I got two offers. Uh, one from McKinsey. Uh, and one from from L'Oréal, and uh, and I decided to jump on on the McKinsey one.
0: That's amazing. And I mean, you did a little bit of the management consulting, but that definitely got you right after that into AstraZeneca, which was the most immediate step, you know, prior to starting your your latest baby. I mean, the rocket ship that you're in. So, <laughs> so tell us about you know like that experience, you know, being you know there at AstraZeneca, and more importantly, you know, like that incubation process of the idea that would eventually you know
1: become you know your next company so if if, if you don't mind i also want to shed some light on the mckinsey process project because that was that was the first time i get to be more exposed at the global scale uh and also a different way of thinking i think that has shaped me i think it was one of the best uh, the best schools i have i have been into very honestly um, and uh, I started to look at things from very different perspectives. Start to work in in Morocco, in Algeria, Saudi Arabia, UK, uh, Switzerland, Belgium. So you start to see the world from very different angles and and different perspectives. Um, and uh, and it was amazing time. But uh, but we um, and and then I, when I moved to to AstraZeneca, I had a I had a kind of an ultimatum from my wife. Uh, when we got our first baby, she told me, "Forget it. It's uh, it's either me or, or McKinsey." and the, Lucky me, I have chosen my wife, <laughs> so, and we, and I, uh, I took, a, I took a job offer from AstraZeneca, uh, where um, it was. You, you go back to the to the real uh, corporate world in in a in a in a in a big in a big role for uh, at that age, where I was reading strategy and, um, and business development, you know, including M and A's activities, portfolio management, uh, and so on for for almost forty eight countries distributed in different in different parts of the of the region, uh, but uh, but in that time, it was so obvious to me how all pharma companies have been doing exactly the same uh, uh, way of go to market as it used to be hundred years ago. You have the medical representatives that they go visit the doctor physically, they knock the door, waiting time, and you manage the waiting time. And I was like, if a company that managed to put in the palms of the doctor and application, and then we go and sell these to the pharma companies, we're going to save tons of money, we're going to create massive efficiencies in the system, and this company would be uh, you know, the coming unicorn. And I was so carried about this idea, and I felt this is, this is a, an actually a global thing. This could, could be everywhere in the world. I have seen this problem in, in AstraZeneca in London. As much I've seen it in Germany, as I've, I've much I've seen it in South Africa, and um, and uh, and egypt and saudi arabia and i say egypt is a fantastic starting point because of uh the the availability of tech talent i know the market inside out and and it, it's it we could do a lot of trials and errors and if it works we scale it um and then uh, i decided to to jump the ship um, i remember the day when um, uh when i told my dad i'm, I'm going to raise a million dollar i have a friend from mckinsey who went to have his own venture capital uh he's a his he's a key component of the success of Visit. This investor named Ziad Buchor, um, and I'm and I'm leaving. And and my dad was like, "Are you nuts? Are you're 28 years old? You're running at a pharma company, um, uh, for 48 countries, and you're leaving this to start? I don't know whatever you want to start. Are you are you crazy or what? What are you thinking? I was like, but dad, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a star." In a year time or so, what are you talking about? And I went to my wife, and that was a very totally different side of the spectrum. She was like, "I told you leave McKinsey. you did, and I'm supporting this. Uh, I want you to be happy, I want to be excited so i got a I got this very different and diverse uh, responses from my family, and I did it with a, with a with a great great co-founder who was the techie uh, chief technology uh, Ahmed bedr, uh, and we did it in two thousand and twelve. For, um, we, I, I would never forget these days. We went in the market and did a survey about building electronic medical record. The idea: we will build electronic medical record for for doctors in their clinics. They use it. We we tell pharma companies to do advertisement on these electronic medical record, and we make tons of money. Um, and we're and we're the richest people on the planet. Um, we did the survey, and I would never forget this. Eighty two percent of the doctors say they're willing. To buy EMR now, uh, to the extent that even the survey we did, the pricing and, and the likes, we put it to the market after six months of building it. In in February or uh, or March 2013, uh, we started to to see adoption rate, and it was very low. And I would say that was a moment when you actually hit the reality. Um, it's um, the the research and the and the idea when when it faced execution it it's a very different life
0: yeah no kidding i mean and what ended up being the mm-hmm. um, the business model because obviously you know you guys you know went through a pretty serious uh, pivot there you know it was it, it came close you know the company going <laughs> you know bankrupt so tell us about that
1: so when you built something that you thought that everybody going to like I, we used to go to sit with the doctors, and I was like, "Why you're not using the electronic medical record that was given you?" And by the way, it was fabulously built. So Microsoft got gave us a, a trophy. Uh, we, we traveled to Belgium to take it. It was basically saying the best EMR in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. We asked the doctor, "Why you're not uh, Why you're not using it?" We used to hear this very weird comment: "It's it's my fault. It's not yours. I I'm I I need to discipline myself." And then with time, we realized okay, we've built something that people are not willing to use. And there are still, in the emerging markets, there are no rules and regulations that will enforce doctors to adopt EMRs. And and we realized it's not going to go to the next step. And we started to ask them, what do you want? But the real outcome that we got, healthcare has been designed and built, serving the providers, serving the doctors, the pharmacists, the hospital, the diagnostic centers, not the patients. And everyone, every company on planet actually thinks that they're serving the patient, but the reality is they're serving the, they're serving the other side, which is the provider. Because if you think about, they usually make the money from the provider. And we thought, you know what? We want to change consumers, patients to consumers. Mm-hmm. We, I'm a patient. I'm the same person. I'm called a consumer if I go to a restaurant I look at the menu and I choose whatever I want. And they call me consumer. I leave, I go to the clothing store um, next door. I'm still called a consumer. And if the same guy, same day, would go to the next door into a clinic, I'm called a patient. And I think because in the clinic, I'm deprived of choice. Uh, not, not because of anything, but because of lack of knowledge, lack of information, and lack of tools that empowers me, uh, empower me to take to the next step. And we thought, you know what? We should be in the business of empowering patients. And then we decided we're gonna create accessibility platform. We help patients choose doctors and book these doctors. And we said, but we're not a booking platform, we're a choice platform. We are empowering patients to choose. So, you know, very big on rating and reviews, co-pays, availability, what they do, what they don't do, backgrounds of these doctors. So it was very big in our heads. And if you think about it, doctors being rated and reviewed to, and I think this is one of the handful of platforms at the global scale, that you will go on the website and you will see negative reviews on the doctors as much as you'll see positive reviews. And I, I remember that was quite problematic in 2013 to tell a doctor that somebody would give you negative reviews. They were they were offended. Um, and uh, But with time, with very strong, Insistence on on this model, it picked up amazingly well because patients started to use it to to choose their doctors. So in reality, we despite we could be classified as a booking platform, but we are way bigger as we are the search platform. We have replaced your friend that you give him a call to ask about a doctor. We have replaced your mom and dad to ask them about who is the best uh, um, you know dentist around. That has actually given a lot of information through real-life information, rating and reviews and comments. It's like a curated, uh, a curated information by other, uh, a provider, uh, by other patients about the providers and about the experience. And if you think about it, that have actually ended up in upscaling the entire ecosystem quality. Waiting time in the market was at a range of 90 to 100 minutes. And it's time to keep going down because they see the waiting time in the clinic and they don't want to wait in these clinics that has this crazy waiting time that has ended up actually providers go back and say, we will use the practice management. Also, uh, they want to get their, uh, their medical data saved. So doctors are actually now back again asking to use the electronic medical record and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that was a, was, a, was a very, very big component in, in the success story. But but you also need to endure the pain to to do this because the money was we we're, were almost run out of money in 2013. So before the glory, before the victory, uh, we ended up actually downsizing. We were I think we're 53 employees, and we ended up going down to six employees in wow. the early 2013. To go back to the drawing table, leave some money in the bank. Uh, that was a devastating moment. The people. That believed in the in the early idea, you need to let them go because the company is is not going to make it. Yeah, um, and you know accept the trough to to go back again.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Sure. I mean those that, but those are the times where you get to learn the most. So um, so it's just part of the journey. So I guess in your case, Amir, you know here you are, you know making it happen, and then you decide to do an MBA at the same time as building a startup. I mean building a startup is already you know a massive undertaking. So. Why going and starting an MBA where you were actually doing the real MBA in real life?
1: I basically looked at the at the world map and I said, transportation, fintech, you are building the ecosystem because you are you are convincing somebody who's not a who's not a driver to become a driver, and you're convincing somebody who is a passenger or a rider to use a different tools of that, and accordingly. You could create, hypothetically, a bigger uh, source of your supply, of of your driver. But in healthcare, that's not the case. In healthcare, what you can do is you improve the interactions with already existing supply. So if you want to create and build a great company, you need to, to go to markets that have already established supply but still the pains are kind of of compatible and according i said okay i want to go to the to the to the big to the big oceans and see how we can we can we can do there and i thought getting closer to the u.s ecosystem which is the largest in the world uh and also getting closer uh to um to one of the schools like mit which is very very heavy in tech and analytics one, it will get me close to the US ecosystem. And it will get me also to be more appreciative of how technology and analytics could upscale the quality of uh, of Visita and take it to, to the next step. The, the the dream in my eyes, I want to be a global player. I don't want to be an emerging market player. I don't want to be a developed market player. I want to be a global player. And I want to take it to the real to the real world. And the first thing that we've done. After that, like after seven or eight months, one of my um, of my friends there, I, I actually poached him and like, why don't we come in to to build this platform? And I and I got Nana Frempong to be actually leading on a part of our U.S. Um, expansion story because the the very the whole idea in my head is how to take it to the next step and the concept that patients are not empowered are not given tools to to help them access healthcare remains as solid as it gets in in egypt as it gets in the u s and and in germany it, it um, and I, and i and we and we we are now in the process of of basically taking it um and proving it in in more markets we we did it in egypt we did it in in saudi which is a very very different um uh, platform and ecosystem of healthcare very different you i would say saudi is closer to the u s than it is to the egypt because of the you know, big payer systems, um, um, diversified landscape of, of big hospital groups and, uh, and smaller clinics and, and polyclinics. But it's very, very close to that. Uh, and, and then we went to Nigeria and now we are in, in the US.
0: And in your case, I mean, how, how much capital have you guys raised today for Visita?
1: So we raised today, until today 70, $73 million in capital or $70, $70 million in, in capital. Big, big portion of that was honestly deployed to build the technology that, that we have, the patient side technology. We are also an, a big, we're pretty big on online pharmacy. So uh, also the online pharmacy and the clinic side of, of the tech. So always think of, we are the triangle of these three pieces, the patient accessibility and medical data uh, from one end, pharmacy side and, and doctor side um uh, and we also big big part of the capital is used to to build the team and the expansion from from one market to to another most of the capital we raised from investors in in the middle east but we also have got endeavor catalyst um uh, uh from from the US uh which is which is part of the endeavor entrepreneur network one of the best things that uh, that honestly any entrepreneur in the world should do and and should join uh, we also have Vostok New Ventures, um, a great um, a great venture capital firm and a private equity firm uh, based out of Sweden, and and definitely Gulf Capital from the Middle East here, a, a, a big player, uh, STV from Saudi um, uh, Silicon Badia, They are also between Jordan and the US. Uh, and and in your
0: case, it's amazing, you know, all these investors that you've got uh, But but more 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 impressive is you know the way that you guys have thought about expansion. Uh, you know, going from Cairo to Saudi, from Saudi to the US, uh, and just, you know, having that global mindset. There's probably a lot of entrepreneurs that right now are watching and listening and they're thinking about also, you know, hey, you know, like, how would it look like, you know, if I was to go global or if I was to go to other territories? What have you learned about expansion that that you think, you know, could be useful for the people that are listening?
1: First of all, if you are a Middle East company and you go and tell somebody that you're going to go and operate in in, in the U.S., they most probably going to tell you you're crazy. Forget about it, uh, and that's what happened definitely. So we we start. We are in the process of starting it smaller uh, uh, until you make sure that it's working, and then you start going big. So I would always believe that in every country you go to, spend the first. I would say three to six months, it depends on how fast you are and how lucky you are to reiterate your product market fit. Think about the the key need in the market. And so the the, the product market fit and who are the key players or the key team members that you will get on board to make it happen. Because you could be the smartest person in the world, but you're not the one that's going to make it happen. You need to hire people who are going to make it happen. When the fundraising comes, you will disappear when the when you need again product market fit. I would say be very very involved. If you feel confident about it, get the person who would be who would, who would take the lead on that. And uh, and I think that's that's my advice. It's in, in some countries, we thought we we have passed the product market fit. What are you talking about? Um, and we we failed because of that. So I I would always spend personally. Significant time at the beginning of each country expansion, especially if the country is large in size, um, and take it from there, um, and 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 identify the key talents who would be leading the the operation. So there are, and I would always think about countries expansion. The, there are two ways of thinking at something like the, you know the geofencing. Somebody says you know Asia Pacific um, or uh, you know uh, Europe. That's a geofencing or Middle East. Because reality is, Germany is not like UK and it's not like France. Um, So, I would, you would, uh, you would see it's a geofencing in our head, but it's not the reality. I would, we think about it or we thought about it and we'll continue thinking about it in what are the factors that impact our business? And accordingly, we start grouping the countries according to that. Then we look at these countries and we say, how different our product we need to change to adapt to the market needs. And then we decide on whether that's a relevant ROI to take it or not. Uh, I think it's a, it's a newer way of looking at countries than the virtual geofencing concept. But I think um, it's the more pragmatic um, way of of looking at it. So, for example, that what made us very logical companies you go from you from egypt to go to dubai for example but we thought that but the, the the dynamics of dubai is different than that of egypt and it's better to go to saudi um and the same it's better to go to nigeria than to go to south africa because you know despite it could be more developed country but no the dynamics are are are, are like that um and so on and and so forth
0: and no 100 percent. so i guess um you know, one of the questions that I want to ask you now is just for the people that are listening to get a sense on the scope and the size of Visita today. I mean, anything that you can share to give us an idea on how big Visita is today?
1: We're operating in in a, in, a, in markets that has a total population today, not including the U.S., because it's still a new operation uh, in the making. Uh, we're we're in in markets that's around uh, half a billion population inhabitants, to in Egypt, Nigeria. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, or or a little a little bit less than that's around uh, three fifty or so. We have around forty thousand uh, medical doctors on our platform that are actively um, um, using our platform on a on a monthly basis, uh, and we are uh, we're serving around uh, um, seven to seven and a half million million patients across different uh, different verticals, and I think the two biggest of them is the doctor consultation. That could be a visit to a doctor, you, so the patient go to the doctor, or the doctor goes to the patient home visit, or a teleconsultation, so, which is we consider this as a vertical of the consultation, and then the other one is medication ordering and delivery, uh, or or the, online, uh, or the online pharmacy space. Very cool. So, so imagine I put
0: you into a time machine, and I take you back in time, and I take you back in time to that moment where you were actually starting the company. Uh, and that time where you were still maybe at AstraZeneca and thinking about the, this, this visita and the idea and what you're going to be bringing to life. I mean, if you could go back in time and have a chat with that younger Amir and give that younger Amir one piece of advice before launching that business, what would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: So I know it's a very controversial Um but i would have i would have taken the the mit m b a first to get this exposure to the world of startups one thing that i realized startup is an industry it's an industry on its own uh building uh, a tech company it's an, it's an it's an industry that is that's very different uh, and exposed being exposed to this industry is a big thing and the, the and the second advice would be Take more time to understand the product market fit, and take and and put the product in the market earlier to test um, the monetization, and then uh, start raising money and scaling. And then, um, because if you if you know that it's working, um, I think you will. Uh, you'll find very different type of investors coming on board, very different excitement level, very different valuations, very different control over your company uh, and very different team to build at that, at that time. So I, I, I would say this, um, these are the two, two things. And, and I think education, whether it's formal or informal, it doesn't matter much, but get very strong exposure and understanding and educational-based uh, information, uh, it changes uh, how you look at, uh, at the startup world. I'm not talking about the traditional uh, by-the-book education only, but I'm talking about how startups work, how startups fail, uh, sit with the CEOs who have failed, who have succeeded. Get access to this world and definitely, and definitely spend time product-market fit uh, and put the product early on in the, in the market and then raise money, not the other way.
0: And you are alluding to education by the book. What is one book that you wish you would have read sooner?
1: I'm in love with Zero to One, uh, Peter three I'm in love with this book. I'm in love with this book. I think it's, uh, you know, personally, I would always think of the idea, I'm going to compete in the, and, you know, win over competition. Then I'm in love with the concept, like, just, Try not to compete play in the I think this book has so many fabulous and fantastic uh, and fantastic uh, pillars of how to build um, a great startup. It doesn't take you by the book like you know step one step two step three but but I but I actually like this book a lot. I would say another book that I really like one particular chapter about I, I like the book all uh, but I like a particular chapter I like outliers. And and I like the the Malcolm the, Gladwell, the, no? Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. Uh, and I like uh, I like the the Ten Thousand Rules, um, and um, and that you will never be an expert unless you are you keep doing this to the to the moment when you are so bored and you still continue doing it, and then you just you're gonna find yourself the expert. I think this is. I think this has changed the way I look at, at myself and what I'm supposed to do. And it made me, because I always think, you know, I get bored easily and I should move from one step to another. But the reality is you, you are only excelling when you are accept that being bored doesn't mean that it's the end of your practice. You keep on practicing again and again and again and again. Uh, so I, I, it. I think it's a, it's a very good one.
0: Amazing. So, Amir, for the people that are listening,
1: what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I think uh, use my LinkedIn. You will find me there, Amir Bersoum. I'm very active on on, on messaging. Uh, send to my email. I'm uh, uh, also... Uh, and 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 on Twitter, I'm I'm quite responsive on these channels. My email is amir.bersoum at visita.com. And uh, I'm definitely my LinkedIn, Amir Bersum. Uh Visita is V-E-Z-E-E-T-A. And you, you're going to find me in all of these platforms.
0: Amazing. Well, Amir, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker show
1: today. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me. I truly enjoy the conversation and the questions.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts,